Nobody knows for sure when the Comanche first got a hold of horses, but the transformation that followed was nothing short of epic. A once nondescript people living in the foothills of the Rockies, horses allowed the Comanche to push their way onto the Great Plains, dominating smaller tribes in the process and claiming the prime buffalo territory as their own. What long before Comancheria included a vast empire of nearly a quarter of a million square miles, stretching throughout the present-day states of Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Kansas, and Colorado. And that's just where they called home. If you want to take into account the raiding capabilities of the Comanche, you're looking as far north as Nebraska and Wyoming, and south hundreds of miles deep into the heart of Mexico. As S.C. Gwynn so eloquently put it in The Empire of the Summer Moon, a Spanish soldier in San Antonio was in grave and immediate danger from a Comanche brave sitting before a fire in the equivalent of modern-day Oklahoma City. Hell so feared were these lords of the Southern Plains that they were one of the main reasons the Mexican government encouraged American settlement in Texas, figured the gringos would offer up some type of a buffer. Sure enough, just like the Spanish and the Mexicans before them, these newly arrived migrants from the east soon found themselves clashing with the Comanche, especially as more and more settlers began pushing into their territory trying to scratch a living out the dirt. And in those early years, there wasn't a whole hell of a lot that anyone could do about it. The Texans may have won independence from Mexico, but their newly acquired republic was, for all intents and purposes, still firmly in the hands of the Comanche nation. Peace negotiations were broken on both sides. Raids and counter-raids were conducted, and entire bloodlines eradicated. Finally, when Texas was admitted to the Union in 1845, federal troops moved in and established a line of forts, attempting to offer at least a little protection to the settlers braving the edges of Comancheria. Believe it or not, many of these troops were infantry, and next to useless at waging campaigns against mounted warriors and the dragoons didn't fare much better. Poorly equipped with swords and musketoons, these heavy-in-the-saddle predecessors to the cavalry were far too slow to pursue horse soldiers like the Comanche. So the attacks continued, exasperated by official policies that were astonishingly passive. Soldiers were not to fight hostiles until attacked, or unless they had clear proof that the natives in question had been directly involved in criminal acts. This meant that they were also forbidden from conducting punitive raids north into Indian Territory, a.k.a. present-day Oklahoma. From what I understand, this regulation was largely in place to protect the much friendlier tribes like the Cherokee and their allies, and to uphold a few tentative treaties already in place with certain bands of the Comanche. That said, a good number of the warriors soon deduced that they could strike Texas with impunity and then skedaddle up across the Red River without fear of repercussion. Finally, in late 1857, the Dragoons of the 2nd U.S. Cavalry were redeployed to Utah to take on the revolting Mormons, thus leaving the frontier almost completely without protection. As you can imagine, attacks only increased, along with rumors of another great raid of the sort conducted in 1840 when Buffalo Hump and his warriors pillaged their way to the Gulf of Mexico. Texas Governor Hardin Runnels figured the only way to check these depredations was by calling up a regiment of Texas Rangers, who had mostly been disbanded following the Mexican-American War. Turns out this was a pretty common practice. In the years 1850, 1852, 1855, and 1857, the Rangers had likewise been temporarily activated with limited state funding and then disbanded. To lead this latest force, Runnels chose none other than the legendary John Salmon Rip Ford. 
By the way, just in case you were curious, my name's Josh, and this is the Wild West Extravaganza. Now, if you didn't know no better, Rip Ford may have seemed like an odd choice. Ford, at this time, was in his early 40s and working as a newspaper editor in addition to teaching Sunday school. Almost any given night, you'd be more likely to find him studying his Bible rather than worrying over military tactics. Be that as it may, Ford did have quite a well-deserved reputation as an Indian fighter. Served as a ranger under the famed captain John Coffey Hayes in his younger years losing a finger to the Comanche in the process, and even catching a poison arrow, a wound that still bothered him years later. Along with fighting hostiles, Ford also rode with the Mounted Rifles during the Mexican-American War, at which time he earned his iconic nickname. Tasked with sending death notices to the families of fallen soldiers, Ford would finalize each letter directly under his signature with the phrase, Rest in Peace. As casualties mounted, this was shortened to R.I.P., and the name stuck. Wasn't long before his fellow rangers took to calling him Old Rip. Now the plan in 1858 was for Ford to raise a regiment of Texas Rangers and lead a preemptive strike up into Indian Territory, hopefully catching the Comanche with their pants down. And his orders from Governor Runnels were explicit. I impress upon you the necessity of action and energy. Follow any trail and all trails of hostile or suspected hostile Indians you may discover and if possible, overtake and chastise them if unfriendly. This was followed by Runnels making it abundantly clear that Ford and his rangers were to brook no interference whatsoever from anyone, i.e. the U.S. Army or Indian agents, who attempted to prevent them from accomplishing this mission by crossing the Red River. Thus charged, Rip began heading north, recruiting volunteers as he traveled until he had a force of just over 100 rangers. A base camp was set up not far from Fort Belknap, Dubbed Camp Runnels, a little bit of ass-kissing in that name choice if you ask me, and Ford commenced organizing and drilling his men. Officers were chosen, many of whom had previous experience engaging hostiles and Mexicans alike, and each ranger was outfitted with a long rifle and a minimum of two Colt revolvers. They tried to get a shipment of the newer model Navy Colts, but these were controlled by Major General David Twiggs, who just so happened to command the Department of Texas. Twiggs refused, saying that he weren't going to issue the guns unless Ford and his men agreed to be placed under federal command. Considering that the Rangers had plans of defying federal policy, openly declaring war on the Comanche, and invading Indian territory where they had zero legal jurisdiction, federal oversight was about the last thing they wanted. With that in mind, they did still do all right with the slightly older revolvers that they had at their disposal, and Ford boasted that his rangers could shoot a total of 1,500 rounds without needing to reload, a tremendous advantage when it came to mounted warfare. In years past, when relying solely on single-shot muskets and pistols, your average teenage Comanche could fire off 20 or so well-placed arrows in the time it took for an experienced Texas ranger just to reload. With Sam Colt's equalizers, this was no longer an issue. And what's more, they could also be effectively wielded from the back of a galloping pony. As the Rangers continued to train, future Texas Governor Sol Ross, then just a nervy 19-year-old, moseyed on down to the neighboring Brazos Indian Agency to recruit a passel of friendly natives, the bulk of whom turned out to be Tonkawas. Now, if you're not familiar, it's thought that the Tonkawa arrived in Texas a little before the Comanche. 
settling down in the central portion of the state where the town around Rock now stands. They aided the Texans during the revolution with Mexico and got along well with settlers for the most part. Still, though, by the early 1850s, they, along with the Caddo, Anadarko, Waco, and a few other smaller tribes, had been forced to settle on what was known as the Brazos River Reservation, some 12-odd miles south of Fort Belknap. And they, just like the settlers, fell victim to the Comanche Raiders from the north. Make no mistake about it, though, the Tonkawa were fierce fighters, and they certainly needed no special incentive to fall in with the Rangers and exact a little revenge. Their leader on this jaunt would be the 70-year-old, yet still tough-as-nails chief by the name of Placido, known to his people as Hashukana, or can't kill him. Placido's mother, ironically, was a Comanche captive. Just goes to show how far back things had been uneasy between the two tribes. Also joining the Tonkawa would be an additional smattering of fighters from the tribes I mentioned a moment ago. The Waco, Caddo, and Adarko, hell, even a few Shawnee. All total, there would be 113 reservation warriors, along with a specially recruited scout by the name of Kichi, who had once lived amongst the Comanche. By the way, this episode goes out to Evie. Hope I pronounced that right. Short for Genevieve. Evie, hopefully you're listening. Do me a favor and stop what you're doing right now and go give your dad a good swift kick to the balls. Don't hold back. He can take it. Uh, no, seriously. Thank you, Evie, for listening. Sounds like you're a pretty cool young lady. And your dad, Jeremy, sounds okay, I guess. Thanks to both y'all for listening. Really means the world to me. Back to the story. Captain Ford saw that two light wagons were loaded with powder and supplies, but not really much in the way of foodstuffs. This campaign was to be conducted in the old way, much like it was years prior under John Coffey Hayes. The Rangers would travel light and hard, they and their indigenous compadres fending for themselves and subsiding off of what they could hunt along the way. Likewise for their horses. There was no feed, so they'd have to make do just like the Comanche mounts and settle for whatever grass was available. Thus provisioned, Captain Ford led the column of a little over 200 men north on April 22, 1858, and despite federal policy, immediately crossed the Red River into Indian Territory. Later, when pressed on whether or not there was any hesitation, Ford stated that his mission was to find Indians, not learn geography. Now, before we go any further, I do want to say another quick word on the Tonkawa, who were accompanying these rangers. Any cursory search on Google is sure to unearth a ton of stories involving the tribe's penchant for cannibalism. This is a little misleading. While the Tonkawa did engage in ritual cannibalism on occasion, the key word here is ritual. They weren't out there just running around hunting humans down for food. As far as I can tell, this practice was done with the idea of absorbing their vanquished enemies' power rather than filling empty bellies. Is it strange to us nowadays? Absolutely. Hell, it was strange to the Comanche and other tribes even back 200 years ago, which I believe was another reason why the Tonkawa did it. It scared the shit out of their enemies. So yeah, the Tonkawa did engage in a form of ritual cannibalism, but they were not subsiding off of human flesh. And the only reason I bring this up, I do think it's important to differentiate because these claims historically in the years past were blown way out of proportion and oftentimes used as an excuse to commit genocide, particularly on the Tonkawa's neighbors to the south, the Karankawa. Also, you may read that the Tonkawa are now extinct. This is false. There are several hundred enrolled members of the tribe living and thriving up in Oklahoma. They even have a website if you want to check it out tonkawatribe.com. 
And after crossing the Red River, it was these Tonkawa who was riding point for the Rangers, scouting far ahead, searching for sign. After about two weeks in the saddle, the Tonkawa reported seeing a string of Comanche camps on the Canadian River. Sure enough, the following day, May 11th, they and the Rangers spied a few Comanche hunters in the distance, chasing buffalo. Knowing the main bunch would be close at hand, Ford commanded his men to set up a cold camp and keep the noise at a minimum. That night, he sent out some more Tonkawa scouts to kick up additional intel. Turns out them buffalo hunters had a small village of less than a dozen lodges just a few miles away on Little Rope Creek. Easy pickings for Ford and his men. Furthermore, there were reports of an even larger village further to the north. And if you're looking for this location on a modern-day map, this is far western Oklahoma, damn near on the border with the Texas Panhandle, and from what I can tell, just north of the Antelope Hills. Just before first light on the following day, May 12th, the native scouts wrapped their heads with cloth, just as a way so the rangers wouldn't confuse them with the enemy. They then asked for and received permission to open up the dance on that tiny village. What followed was a swift yet brutal attack as the Tonkawa caught the sleeping Comanche completely unaware. Damn near everyone was killed, men and women, and what few survivors there were were taken captive. Regarding the death of the women, Ford later defended these actions by saying, it was not an easy matter to distinguish Indian warriors from squaws. From there, the column continued on to the larger village, and once again, Ford sent in the Tonkawa and other reservation warriors. This time, though, the Comanche were ready, rallied by the courageous old chief, Iron Jacket. Forgive me for not attempting the man's Comanche name, I don't think I'd do it justice, but it roughly translated to Trotter. Be that as it may, to the Mexicans and the Texans, he was known as Iron Jacket, on account of an old Spanish coat of mail that he wore into battle. Not a lot is known about Iron Jacket, but he was likely around 60 years of age at this time, and described as both a war chief with dozens of raids under his belt, in addition to being a powerful medicine man with the ability to, quote, blow bullets away with his breath likely a reference to that Spanish armor, which no doubt had deflected a few arrows and poorly charged musket balls in previous battles. With this big medicine and a whole hell of a lot of balls, Iron Jacket rode out alone in front of the Rangers and Tonkawas and began taunting and challenging them to individual combat. Nonpulsed, Ford ordered a volley of shots, some of which found their mark and knocked the old warrior from his horse. Sure enough, though, living up to his reputation as being able to repel bullets, Iron Jacket quickly rose to his feet and notched another arrow. A second volley was fired, and at least one of these rounds did what no other bullet had yet been able to do. As old Iron Jacket collapsed and lay breathing his last, Captain Ford gave the order to draw revolvers and charge. Now, the death of Iron Jacket momentarily broke the morale of the Comanches. Many fell back, leaving just a few staunch fighters standing their ground who, incidentally, were quickly felled by the pistols of them charging rangers. As was their tendency, the Comanches did attempt to slow down the attackers long enough to allow their women and children to retreat. As such, a small group of warriors gathered on the banks of Little Rope Creek in an attempt to make a stand of it. Their efforts were not in vain, as a few lucky family members were able to flee to safety but these Comanche paid dearly for their courage, each of them soon killed by the determined Texas Rangers and their Brazos Reservation allies. According to one participant, a Sergeant Bob Cotter, quote, Captain Ford was everywhere, directing and controlling the movements of his men. The fight then devolved into a running gun battle, stretching miles over the prairie as the mounted Rangers rode down what survivors they could find. 
Sensing that powder and lead were running low and the horses were likely nearing exhaustion, Ford finally gave the command for everyone to fall back to the conquered village and regroup. After all, by this point, they had been fighting for a good six hours straight. As the rangers and the Tonkawas were taking a brief moment of rest, several hundred additional Comanche warriors appeared in the distance, led by Iron Jacket's son, Pete Nakona, who himself was the father of future Texas legend, Quanah Parker. What happened next is something that few white men had ever witnessed. For the better part of an hour, there was a standoff, with the Comanche and Tonkawa meeting in the middle for individual hand-to-hand combat. According to Captain Ford, quote, The mind of the spectator was carried back to the days of chivalry, the joists and tournaments of knights. The whole performance was a novel show to a civilized man. End quote. Apparently, the Tonkawa were getting the worst of these bouts, so Ford finally ordered them to advance in mass, a bluff of sorts that he hoped would draw the Comanche down out of the hills. Peter Nakona failed to take the bait, so an impatient Ford ordered his rangers forward at a trot. Once within distance, the command was given to charge, and once more, the fight was on. The Comanches, although outnumbering their attackers by at least two to one, soon found themselves outmatched by the leadership of Ford and the firepower of all them six-shooters. Got to imagine they were also still suffering from the shock of losing Iron Jacket and just getting attacked out of the blue right there in their own country. Despite all this, Peter Nakona and the other chiefs were able to effect a somewhat orderly retreat organizing the warriors and fighting a series of delaying actions as women and children ran for safety. Once again, there was a running gun battle, stretching for miles, and once again, the fighting ended with Ford's concerns of worn-out men and animals. Also, the captain had just learned from a captive that there was an even larger village further downriver under the leadership of Buffalo Hump. Miraculously, only one ranger was killed in the entire day's action, along with a Waco warrior, both of whom were lanced. They left an estimated 75 dead Comanche in their wake and took 18 women and children as captives, along with 300 Comanche horses. Per usual, the villages, or what was left of them, were raised, and the next morning, the triumphant rangers headed south. By May 21st, they were back in Camp Runnels, where Ford got busy writing up his after-action report, stressing that he and his men were so successful that all future pursuits of the hostiles should be undertaken in a similar fashion. The Comanche can be followed, overtaken, and beaten, providing the pursuers will be laborious, vigilant, and are willing to undergo privations, Ford wrote. This led to vigorous debates in Texas as to who was better qualified to protect the frontier, Rangers or the U.S. Army. Sam Houston himself, in the months that followed, would claim that they no longer needed federal troops, but instead, give us a thousand Rangers and we will be responsible for the defense of the frontier. Only problem was a little too much money was spent in this endeavor. And you know how politicians can be with money. Declaring a quick win, Governor Runnels nixed Ford's plans for future punitive expeditions. And then, to save cost, went ahead and once more disbanded the Texas Rangers. The Comanches and their allies would continue as a force to be reckoned with, with their raids only increasing in the years to come, as most Texas men of fighting age would head east for the Civil War. Wouldn't be for another decade and a half until the backs of the Comanche were finally broken at the Battle of Palo Duro Canyon. And even then, it would take the slaughter of over a thousand horses and the destruction of hundreds of lodges. The Tonkawas would help out with that fight as well, and for their efforts, they were kicked off their land and sent packing up to Indian territory with everybody else. 
Of course, by that point, old Pete and Nakona and Buffalo Hump were already dead, and Rip Ford had retired down to Brownsville, where he found himself elected as the mayor. Not quite as exciting as Indian fighting, but I imagine dealing with small-town politics can be a whole hell of a lot more dangerous. And that's about all I've got on the Battle of Little Rope Creek, sometimes referred to as the Battle or Campaign of Antelope Hills. Thank you so much for listening. Do me a favor. If you like what you hear and you want to support the Wild West extravaganza, please head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wild West. I like mine black. How about you? More true tales from the Wild and Woolly West can be found at wildwestextra.com. And while you're there, go ahead and hit that contact button. Let me know what's on your mind. I am open to topic suggestions, complaints, your mammals, old recipes, whatever. That's wildwestextra.com. All right, that's all I got. Sorry if I sound a little bit off. I'm fighting a cold, or as Captain Ford would probably call it, a case of vagina-itis. But hopefully I'll sound a little bit better next episode. All right, till next week, adios. Hey, we'll get back to the story in just a moment. But first, I got to be honest with you. I'm doing this full time now. The Wild West extravaganza is, as we speak, my job. And to tell you the truth, this is sort of a gamble. I'm gambling on myself, and I'm gambling on you. To make this work, and to continue bringing you true tales from the wild and woolly west, in an unfiltered and uncensored fashion, I'm going to need your support. And at this moment, the absolute best way you can support the Wild West extravaganza is by becoming a member of Into History. Into History is a podcast subscription channel made by history lovers for history lovers. Not only will you get to listen to the Wild West Extravaganza ad-free, but you'll gain early access before anyone else. You'll also get bonus content. There is currently Wild West Extravaganza content on Into History that you cannot hear anywhere else, not even on Patreon. And there's a lot more to come. You'll also get to participate in the book club, the community forum, the upcoming live streaming events, and best of all, you won't have to hear my annoying-ass voice break into the middle of a story like I'm doing right now. And guess what? You also get everything I just mentioned from all the other shows in the Into History universe, offering the same perks. Come on, what are you waiting for? Go to IntoHistory.com forward slash Wild West Extra. That's IntoHistory.com forward slash Wild West Extra to become a member today. I love you, and thank you very much for assisting me in helping to keep the Old West alive. Back to the show. Kissing.